How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to study the word and make sure we're in fellowship, ready to uh, grow and respond to the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Fathers, we come together this evening to continue our study in Romans, especially this extremely significant section of Romans eight twenty-eight to 38. We pray that you would just help us to think through what it is that the Apostle Paul is teaching, that we may be comforted and encouraged by it because that is its purpose, and that above all we might be stimulated to spiritual growth and spiritual advance because at the heart of this passage is a challenge to press on to suffer with Christ that we might be joint heirs with him. Now, Father, we pray that as we study this evening, we can concentrate and focus and think clearly about your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in Romans 8, and this might have been one of those passages Peter talked about when he said that there are some hard things uh, to understand in Paul. And this is a difficult section And I think it's difficult because so many people have heard what I think is sort of the surface or superficial uh, interpretation of the passage. If you read it a certain way, it's easy to think that this is talking about some sort of predestination uh, passage in the typical uh, uh, approach of of five-point Calvinism. And so many people have heard that and heard those kinds of definitions of the terms election and predestination, that when they come to this passage and they read those words, their brains have sort of been front-loaded with those definitions. And what I'm hoping to do as we go through this section is try to uh, unload those definitions and flush them out of our minds because... The key terms that we see here, especially foreknowledge, election, calling that we'll focus on tonight, all have to do with the plan of God for his people. In the Old Testament, those terms had to do with the Old Testament collective people of God in terms of Israel. They were the elect or choice ones. And if you remember last summer, and I've got to recover that photo, we talked about the doctrine of the magnum bar. And we'll be getting back to that again because uh, there was that one magnum bar ice cream bar that I was eating in Israel last summer that had on in Hebrew on it the same word that's used for elect and usually translated elect or select in uh, in the scriptures. But it had to do, as I asked a guide, I said, what what does this mean? He said, choice almonds. The emphasis being choice, uh, emphasis on a qualitative thing, not a selection process or election process with this picture of God somewhere in eternity past making a decision that he is going to create uh, the human race 
and knowing that they will fall or determining in Calvinism that they will fall, he decides that he will select some for salvation and the rest are doomed to uh, to judge eternal judgment and condemnation, and that's the double predestinarian view. Now, not all Calvinists take that view. That's sort of the high, high Calvinist superlapsarian view, uh, depending on the order in which you place uh, God's thinking logically, whether he thinks about determining the fall before he chooses to save some or just the order of that, and I'm not going to get into all of the intricacies of superlapsarianism, infralapsarianism, or Labrador retrievers, we're going to get into just the terminology that's used in the Scripture so we can we can think about it a little more clearly, a little more precisely. And that's why last time I took the at time to give sort of a flyover or overview of of the chapter, or especially the last half from verse 17 on, to show that what the Apostle Paul is doing in verses 18 through 38, or 39 rather, is to help us understand or to challenge us as believers to press on to be, to suffer with Christ and to be joined heirs with Christ. And so the, the theme of suffering is introduced in verse 17, and then it is expanded upon in relation to the believer's future glorification with Christ, starting in verse 18. And so when we come to that well-known favorite promise of Romans 8:28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We have to locate that within this context. Context is everything. It shapes our, our understanding of these words. Now, as we come to Romans 8.28, I want, I want to just I'll review a few things I said last time, but I want to move forward into some other things that we need to understand. First of all, the verse reads, and we know. It starts with that verb in the Greek. It's oida, which is an interesting uh, word choice for the Apostle Paul here. O- oida is, uh, is, has, an odd, uh, has an odd entomology in terms of its grammar and syntax, but it's one of two words that are used in Greek for knowledge. The other word is the word that I've transliterated at the bottom of the paragraph there, gnosko. Gnosko has the understanding of uh, the idea of coming to know something, whereas oida has the idea of something that is intuitive. And when it refers to God, it refers to his omniscience. It's that which is, is, is known um, intrinsically to God. Uh, for human beings, it's either referring to intuitive knowledge or something we've already come to know, everybody's come to understand. It's a perfect tense, which means it's completed action, so it's referring to something that is already known. It was learned or acquired knowledge in the past, and it is a first-person plural, which emphasizes uh, we uh, as opposed to you. So he, Paul is including himself along with his readers in this understanding of this basic principle of Romans 8.28. Now, if you look at the uh, section we're talking about, Paul has significantly shifted to using a first-person plural pronoun uh, starting back as early as verse 16. Uh, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
Uh, could somebody close these doors over here on the right? There's some a little bit of noise coming in through those doors. Um, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. So he's including himself with his his uh, audience that they're all children of God. And I pointed out this is the Greek word uh, techna, which indicates uh, all believers are adopted into God's royal family. Then in verse 17, he says, if, if children, then heirs, um, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed what we suffer with him. So he's still using that first person plural. Verse 18, he talks about the fact that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us or actually directed toward us. Those glories related toward us in terms of the uh, character of Christ being manifest in us. I pointed out that that concept of glory is often a circumlocution, which is a fancy word for saying uh, something in another way, a, a word substitution. The glory of God is often stated to be uh, his essence. That's just a term of talking about. So the essence of God, the character of God is revealed in us. Now that's important because in Romans 8, um, 28, I mean, excuse me, Romans 8, 29, we're told that we're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Predestination doesn't have to be, doesn't mean choosing someone to go to heaven or to go to hell. Predestination, as we're going to see in a couple of verses and more so when we get to that uh, word study, has to do with God's plan, God's destiny for the believer, not God's destiny for some human beings and not other human beings, but God's predetermined plan to conform believers to Christ. That is our preset destiny. God wants us to be conformed to him, and therefore the glory of God in terms of his essence will be manifested in us. Remember Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know from reading that that the glory of God refers to his character, his essence. So <clears throat> we fall short of that essence, but that essence related to his image and likeness is going to be manifested in us. So we're human beings were originally created in the image and likeness of God, and that image was defaced and corrupted by sin, and in the process of sanctification, that likeness, that character of God, which is the same as the character of Christ, is being reformed and developed uh, within us. Well, as we go through these verses, I'm just pointing out that the, the number of times we have the word we, Romans 8.22, for we know, again, um, <clears throat> first person plural, verse uh, 23 says, uh, we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Uh, verse 24 says, we were saved in this hope, uh, but hope that is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we regularly wait for it with perseverance. Uh, and then we is used a couple of other times in verse 25 and 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings. So the whole context here has been developing the idea that this is a common 
the commonality here is between Paul the apostle and his audience. This is a shared common truth. So it's introduced in Romans 8.28 that we know something. The way the Greek sets it up, it's really a, uh, in, in English, we might translate it, we know colon, leaving out the that. It's indirect discourse, uh, just stating a principle that is known, we know, and then the principle is stated. So you get the idea that this was sort of a universal truth that was accepted and understood by all believers. We know that all things work together for good. And then what I want to do is shift us over here to the bottom half of this screen. The top half is the New King James translation. The bottom half is a reordering, a retranslation of the text, reordering the phrases to go into the order that you find them in the in the Greek text for emphasis. We know... To those who love God, that phrase is thrown at the front of the verse because this is an emphasis. Paul is encouraging those who are to be joint heirs with Christ back in verse 17. He, it's not that this doesn't apply to unbelievers. I mean, excuse me, not that this doesn't apply to carnal believers or to believers who just aren't going anywhere in the Christian life. But Paul often, when he's, and John is, the Apostle John as well, often when he is talking to believers, they focus on, they assume that if you're a believer, you're going to want to excel and push towards maturity. They're not accommodating to those who are failures. They they are encouraging everyone, every believer to press on. So he's, while these truths in in some sense apply to all believers, he's really focusing on uh, one category, those who love God. <clears throat> I pointed this out the last time that there's two views on this. One view is that this passage only relates to that class of Christians that are obedient to God, only to those who love God. It doesn't apply to anybody else. But you see, the problem with that view is that when when it goes on to define those who love God, it defines them with this appositional phrase that they're the ones who are the called according to his purpose. Now, the called, are, that term is then placed within a series of steps from the foreknowledge of God to glorification in verse 29, showing that those who are the called are also the ones who are justified, no more and no less. They're the ones who are, those are the ones who are glorified, no more and no less. So, so all believers are the called, but only some believers are really pursuing spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. And so this applies especially to them. So he's thinking in terms of that special group of those who are faithful and growing. That's the second uh, interpretive option. Well, both are true in some sense. He's emphasizing one to the exclusion of the other. He's not saying that the, that the called, um, that this doesn't apply to every believer. It does in some sense, but primarily he's focusing on just the ones who are going somewhere. He's focusing on the movers, and he's not focusing on the sitters. He's just focusing on that one group. Uh, 
doesn't say that the others weren't called. He's just not emphasizing that. So the second option is that this passage refers to all believers, uh, whether, um, wait a minute, the, the, the second option, which is the one that is minimal, is that it applies to uh, every believer, growing or not, faithful or not, or walking by the Spirit or not. It's primarily focusing on that class of Christians who are obedient to God. And we know this because throughout Scripture, those who love God are... Those who love God are those who are obedient. Those who are disobedient don't love God. So the phrase, those who love God, is a restrictive term. Now, all believers are called, but not all of the called are pressing on. But they have the potential to press on. They have the potential to grow. And that's why Paul is focusing on this, because he is trying to motivate and challenge all believers to be obedient and so that they can suffer with Christ to be joint heirs with him. In the New Testament, passages like John 14, 15, John 14, 21, emphasize the fact that love is exhibited in action, obedience. Love is not an emotion. There may be an emotional kind of love, but love is a uh, Action. It is obedience to God. It is doing what God says to do. Uh, John fourteen twenty one. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. The one who is disobedient isn't demonstrating love. John fifteen ten. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Once again, obedience and love go hand in hand. First John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, the love for God. How do we demonstrate that? By keeping his commandments. Now, as we look at the text, we read and we know that all things, that are looking at it in terms of the um, word order, that to those who love God, all things work together for good. I pointed out last time that the all things references the suffering that's mentioned starting in verse 17. If we suffer with him, we'll be glorified with him. Uh, verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory to come. Then we get into the issue of the groaning of creation. Uh, it's under a bondage of corruption in verse 21. And verse 22, the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs. Verse 23, um, talks about we ourselves grown within ourselves awaiting the adoption, the redemption of the body. So the, the all things relates to the negative uh, features, the negative adversities, the problems, the suffering that we go through uh, in this life. Now, the way it is structured in the best Greek text, and remember I pointed out last time this isn't even an issue in the debate between the majority text and the Nestle-Alan text. That's the newer. Some of you, if you have a New King James Bible, you will see in the uh, in a in a uh, footnote it will say uh, the NU text says, and the NU are both uppercase. The N stands for the Nestle Aland text, and that's one of the critical texts of the uh, Greek New Testament. And the U stands for the UBS, probably now it's UBS 4 text. And so that's what that's referring to. That's the group of texts that believe that the oldest is the best, and they usually go with the readings if you get three or four of the uh, uh, North African 
uncials agreeing together, they automatically go with that, even if every other manuscript has another reading. But this doesn't even relate to that issue at all. It is simply that there are a couple of North African texts that uh, from the third, late third, early fourth century that have the reading of God cause God is the subject. God causes all things to work together for good. But no other manuscripts in any of the other major family groups of manuscripts, they, textual critics are able to sort of group manuscripts into large geographical families because they, they uh, exhibit certain characteristics. It's not even that. This isn't, this isn't difficult, just that th- this reading of God showing up as the subject of the verb shows up in only three or four manuscripts and only two major ones. And it's easy to explain that some scribe wanting to clarify things inserted God because it appears that God is the subject, uh, would be the one who performs this. God causes all things to work together for good would be the implication. But there are many times in Scripture where we have certain statements made that are impersonal. It's not saying that the all things are actively causing their own uh, outworking to good, but that it's it's stated that way. It's an idiom of everyday speech. This morning I was working through in preparation for some things coming up in Romans 9 and related also to the, the predestination election issue, volition and free will. I was working through, reading through Exodus and the passages dealing with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And it's interesting, in a, in two, sometimes in two verses next to each other, sometimes in three verses, the way it's stated, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then the next verse it says, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And then the next verse it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, which is it? And and what it is, is that we it, ultimately God is the ultimate cause of everything in the universe. He allows everything. But you also have the way we talk in everyday language about things, Pharaoh has a volition, and he hardened his heart. Uh, his heart was also hardened, and we'll talk about that simply because of the way he responded to his circumstances. And then ultimately, God is overseeing this, bringing about his plan and purposes in the history of Israel, but that doesn't mean God is overriding Pharaoh's volition. But you have three different ways in which the language operates. One is sort of passive. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. But we're not saying that he didn't do anything or make any choices. That's just the way in which people talk. That's the idiom uh, of language. What hardened it? Well, he went through uh, difficult times, and that's how he responded. And so it's also true Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The point I'm making from using that as an illustration is simply that we use language idiomatically all the time, and we have to understand that sometimes you can't take an idiom or a, a, a normal way of speaking where we take an active verb and or passive verb and express it uh, uh, passively, or we take take a, a, a something that is personal and speak about it impersonally. The, the, these are just the way in which a language is used. So it's, it's the best text state we know that all things work together for good. That's not saying that the things are actively working in everything. It's understood God is the one who's doing this and bringing about 
the results for the good. So all things refers to the suffering. That seems to be the subject because the topic of these previous verses are these things of adversity that we're facing. And so it's just uh, a common use of language for Paul to say, well, these things will work themselves out to good. The assumption is because God has a plan and purpose, which is what he unfolds in the next couple of uh, phrases and verses. So he says, we know to those who love God, all things work together for good. And then he further defines those who love God as those who are called according to his purpose. And this is where we came last time to talk about this whole issue of the calling and locating that within the context of a lot of modern theological debate. Calvinism, especially, I I would say high Calvinism, five-point Calvinism, has been on a resurgence for the last 30 or 40 years. There are different theories I've heard for this. Of course, Calvinists will say, well, that's because it's biblical and more people are getting back to the text. Uh, I wouldn't say uh, agree with that. I think it's because Calvinism is an extremely tight theological system for people who love rigor and details and uh, hyperlogic. They fall in love with the system of Calvinism, and it, but it's an integrated system, and it has flaws. If you grant the assumptions of Calvinism, then you have to grant, like any other system, its conclusions. But I don't grant the assumptions uh, there because the assumptions are often flawed in terms of their view of the sovereignty of God and the volition of man. I think that Calvinists have a very low view of God. Their view of God's sovereignty is narrow and not wide. Of course, they would say the opposite. But for a sovereign God to be able to oversee and superintend all of the uh, volition of mankind indicates the superiority of God. But if God, as Calvinists present it, if God has predetermined each and every solution and every decision, then that, that conception of God's omnipotence and omniscience is narrow. My view of God's omniscience is much broader. In Calvinism, in Cal- and we'll get into this when we get into foreknowledge, in, Cal- in the standard Calvinist definition, God cannot know what will happen unless God has first predetermined what will happen. So in, in strict Calvinism, God does not know all of the knowable, all of the potential, all of the possible. He only knows what will happen. In my view of the omniscience of God, God knows all of the knowable. When he's make, when Jesus makes statements about Sodom and Gomorrah and Capernaum and Bethsaida, that if they had only responded to the grace that was given them, then things would have been very different. He knows what might have happened, what could have happened under other conditions. God's knowledge is extensive. It is not narrow and restricted to only that which he has uh, predetermined and in Calvinism, what they do is they take foreknowledge and they make it they make it for, uh, a causative element. God causing certain things to happen. That's why He knows that they can happen. Now we'll get into that a little more, but that's sort of a setup because last time I gave you some quotes 
from some Calvinists, and I want to give you uh, some more tonight so you can hear what they're saying. These quotes are from a book. I first read this book probably 40 years ago before I went to seminary trying to think my way through these issues called The Five Points of Calvinism Defined, Defended, and Documented by uh, David Steele, Curtis Thomas, and Roger Nicole. And this first came out in 1963. In their introduction, sort of a summation of these things, uh, of, of the effectual call or irresistible grace section, they say, as was shown above, that is in the previous discussions on election and uh, unconditional election and um, limited atonement, they write, as was shown above, the Father before the foundation of the world, that is in eternity past, marked out those who were to be saved and gave them to the Son to be his people. So before there's a, in, in strict or high Calvinism, before there's even a decree for a fall, God decrees to save some and to condemn others. That's superlapsarianism. He marks out a set group, a finite group of people, a set group of people who are to be saved and gave them to the Son to be his people. At the appointed time, they go on to say, the Son came into the world and secured their redemption. See, in, in high Calvinism, five-point Calvinism, limited atonement means Jesus only died for those who were first chosen, the elect. So he, his redemption only secures the salvation of those God chose. Everybody else is passed over. <clears throat> but these two great acts, they say, election and redemption, do not complete the work of salvation. Now, now he's going to talk about its application. Because included in God's plan for recovering lost sinners is the renewing work of the Holy Spirit by which the benefits of Christ's obedience and death. Notice in Calvinism, they have two categories. Obedience saves you. Christ's active obedience is soteriological. Not just his death on the cross, but his active obedience in life. That's a critical issue for other things, but just kind of file that away. Maybe you'll hear it a few more times. But what saves us isn't just Christ's obedience with the cross. I mean, just his death on the cross. It's his obedience in life. That's what they're they're saying there. So the renewing work of the Holy Spirit by which the benefits of Christ's obedience and death are applied to the elect. It's not applied to anybody else or can't be applied to anybody else. It is with this phase of salvation, that is, its application by the Spirit, that the doctrine of irresistible or efficacious grace is concerned. See, in historic theology, efficacious grace is a Calvinist term. It doesn't mean that God takes your, that God the Holy Spirit takes your faith and makes it efficacious for salvation. That is not a historic definition of efficacious grace. Efficacious grace is and always will be a Calvinist term, and therefore you can't redefine it to be something else. It is a Calvinist term, meaning that God the Holy Spirit uh, graciously uh, graciously calls in silence uh, internally only the elect. And we'll explain this in the next sentence. Simply stated, he says, this doctrine asserts that the Holy Spirit never fails 
to bring to salvation those sinners whom he personally calls to Christ. See, it doesn't, no, that's the classic definition of efficacious grace. Nobody else uses the term but Calvinist. It doesn't mean to make your faith effective for salvation. It means that the Spirit never fails to bring to salvation those sinners whom he personally calls to Christ. He inevitably applies salvation to every sinner whom he intends to save, and it is his intention to save all the elect. So he doesn't apply this to anybody else. He applies it only to the elect, and it is irresistible. In other words, when the Holy Spirit begins this work, you don't have anything to say about it. Your volition can't say, well, I'm not going to believe in Christ. Can't do that. It's irresistible grace, and it is always affects its result, which is why it's called efficacious grace. They go on to say the gospel invitation extends a call to salvation to everyone who hears its message. Now, that's what I call last time the external call, the open invitation to believer and unbeliever alike. It invites all men without distinction to drink freely of the water of life. See, it's a free offer, but they're not free to respond, so it's a moot offer. It invites all men without distinction to drink freely of the water of life and live. It promises salvation to all who repent and believe. But this outward general call extended to the elect and non-elect alike will not bring sinners to Christ. You didn't know that. You can offer salvation to people, but it won't bring any, any sinner to Christ unless they're elect. Not going to bring anybody else to Christ. Why? Because men are by nature dead in sin and are under its power. Even, you know, those who are elect are dead and under its power. The gospel call can't do anything. That's what they say. Skip down a little bit to this line. Consequently, the unregenerate will not respond to the gospel call to repentance and faith. You can't respond. It's impossible, whether you're elect or not. They go on to say, no amount of external threatenings or promises will cause blind, deaf, dead, rebellious sinners to bow before Christ as Lord and to look to him alone for salvation. Such an act of faith and submission is contrary to man's lost nature. Therefore, the Holy Spirit must do something. We understand that. We all agree the Holy Spirit does something. What he does is the matter of contention. Therefore, they write, the Holy Spirit, in order to bring God's elect to salvation, extends to them that is, only the elect, a special inward call in addition to the outward call contained in the gospel message. So there's an outward gospel message to all, but it can't save anybody or bring anybody to salvation at all. That's what they just said. Only the inner call can do that. So this special inner call, uh, this special call, the Holy Spirit performs a work of grace or through this special call, the Holy Spirit performs a work of grace within the sinner, which inevitably, or within the sinner, which inevitably brings him to faith in Christ. Inevitably, that means you can't resist it. The unregenerate person r- receives this inner call. Can't his volition doesn't matter. He can't resist it. That's why it's called irresistible grace. And it automatically and inevitably will bring him to faith in Christ. The inward change wrought in the elect sinner enables him to understand and believe spiritual truth. Wait, read that carefully. I'm, I'm going to ask a test question here. 
the inward change wrought in the elect sinner. What is the nature of that inward change? Is it, is it, I mean, according to Calvinists, is that inward change, is that just knowledge, ability to understand the gospel? No. Look at where he, they're going to go with this. That, it's regeneration. That's what they mean by an inward change. Um, <clears throat> the inward change wrought in the elect sinner enables him to understand and believe spiritual truth. In the spiritual realm, he's given the seeing eye and the hearing ear. It's, they're not limiting this to just understanding the gospel message. That's what I would say, is that the Holy Spirit acts upon all who hear the external call to enable them to understand the spiritual issues. But what they're saying is the Holy Spirit only acts on the elect, and they, it's not just knowledge, it's not just understanding, it is there is a change wrought within them. He says, the Spirit creates within him a new heart or a new nature. That's regeneration. They haven't believed yet. See, regeneration in high Calvinism comes before faith. They can't believe because they're spiritually dead. How can a dead person believe, they'll say. They have to be made alive first, and then they can believe. So he says the Spirit creates within him a new heart or a new nature. This is accomplished through regeneration or the new birth by which the sinner is made a child of God and is given spiritual life. Now, we understand that. We can all agree to that basic definition that regeneration is it means the sinner is made a child of God and is given spiritual life. It's just that they put it before he believes. They go on to say his will is renewed through this process so that the sinner spontaneously comes to Christ of his own free choice. The reason he comes to Christ of his own free choice is he's given a new nature that predetermines that he will respond to the gospel by faith. You see? Anybody have any questions? Anybody want clarification? I want to make sure you understand what they are saying. Because, and this is the best thing, best way to do it. Okay. His will is renewed in this process so the sinner spontaneously comes to Christ of his own free choice. But he's already, but he's already regenerate. He's, he's regenerated before he ever believes. Because he can't believe being spiritually dead. That's their view. Because he's given a new nature so that he loves righteousness. And because his mind is now enlightened so that he understands and believes the biblical gospel, the renewed sinner freely and willingly turns to Christ as Lord and Savior. Thus, the once dead sinner is drawn to Christ by the inward supernatural call of the Spirit who through regeneration makes him alive and creates within him faith and repentance. See, faith is meritorious. It's given to the regenerate person so that they can uh, respond to the gospel. They're, they're regenerate. God does everything. There's no room for human volition. No room for, they, they have free choice, but only after they're regenerate. And they're regenerate and only, they can only exercise choice in the gospel after they've been already re- regenerated or given new life. Okay, for sake of time, I quoted these uh, two Reformed theologians last week, Burkhoff, talking about external calling, that uh, you just, just simply recognizing there's an external call. 
but it doesn't save anybody. Nobody can res- really respond to it. Only the they can only respond to the internal call, which affects regeneration. John Gerstner says the call is to whomever will, which only applies to the regenerate. You didn't read that in the little footnote when it says whosoever will. There's a little asterisk there in your in their Bible, and down the footnote it says only the elect. I'm being facetious. Whosoever will, only if you're elect. So the call is always to the regenerate and never to the unregenerate. That's Gerstner. Okay. Um, Then I also had this quote from Millard Erickson last time. Salvation consists of three steps. Effectual calling. The effectual calling brings about conversion and regeneration. Now, you see for him, he's got conversion before regeneration. So not all Calvinists are the same. You have low Calvinism, you have high Calvinism, you have you have uh, hyper-Calvinism. Those are different different, uh, different uh, strengths of Calvinism. But all this relates to the doctrine of calling. So let me just highlight a few things about what the Scripture says about calling. First of all, in the Scripture, the term calling or the called or call, uh, 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 calling refers to the overall process by which unjustified sinners come to understand the plan of salvation and God's invitation to them to receive salvation in Christ. So I'm just emphasizing here it's an invitation. When I give an invitation or explain the gospel on Sunday morning, that is an invitation to all. It's an external invitation, summons, or a calling to respond to the gospel. When we have the phrase, when we have the phrase, the called, it refers to those who have responded to uh, the gospel by putting their faith alone in Christ alone. That while there are others who were who were invited. Because they rejected it, they're no longer considered the called. The, in Matthew 12, uh, 1 through 4, 22, 1 through 14, rather, Matthew 22, 1 through 14, we have the, um, the parable of the, of the wedding feast. And invitations go out to one and all, but only a few respond. The ones who did not respond, or we could change the terminology a little bit and say, even though they were invited, they're no longer the invited ones because they didn't show up. The ones who showed up that are in the banquet hall are the invited ones. They're the called ones. Others were invited, but they didn't show up, so they're not considered called anymore. The most well-known use probably of this one word, kletos, uh, uh, is many are called, but few are chosen. Now, we'll come back to this again because the word chosen there is the word for elect. So many are called. Why would God invite someone and that wasn't elect, that wasn't chosen? It's a conundrum. In, in, in Calvinism, they have a problem. That's why they have to say, well, the, the ones who, this is just the external call. Uh, the, the elect refers to the internal call, but that, the, the, the phrase, the way called is used in the text, refers to those who actually showed up. This Matthew twenty two fourteen, just to be clear, is talking about an external, the, the open invitation. Many are called, few, few are the choice ones, few are those who show up. And the second use, we'll come back to that again when we get to election. 
In over 50 uses in Paul's epistles, the word group has a more restricted or technical use referring to those, the completed process, those who have responded to the gospel. The called ones are anyone who's believed in Jesus. They were called. They were the called ones. The others failed to respond. The ones who responded, it focuses on the not only the completion of the process, but as I'm going to show, it relates to the purpose of the calling. We can't, every one of these terms relates to God's future purpose, not a past action. That's what I want to emphasize. It all relates to God's purpose and plan. So we'll see that when we get into some, some text in a minute. So point three, the calling uh, or the invitation for the ones who respond is effectual because they responded, not because they were elect but because they were responded because they responded and believed the gospel they are saved they are regenerate because they believed those who refuse to attend though invited are now irrelevant to the purpose of the invitation because they haven't shown up at the banquet this is related to Matthew 22 uh, since they did not fulfill the invitation fulfill the invitation they cannot be referred to as invited ones now, another way in which the word calling is used is in secular Greek and in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word group also had the idea of commissioning someone. In the Old Testament, the Greek word kaleo is used to translate the Hebrew word kara in the sense of service and dedication, and this conforms to our sense of a commissioning. Uh, for example... I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. This has the idea of why God calls Israel as a nation in righteousness. They're commissioned to be an example of righteousness to the nations. It's not just, it doesn't have the sense of I have called you uh, in the sense of of a name, which is what we have um, in the next verse. Isaiah 43, 1, But now thus says the Lord God who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by, by your name. Okay, it's an identification usage, uh, usage there. And um, let's go to Isaiah 41, 2. This is talking about Cyrus. God's going to raise up Cyrus to bring the Jews back to the land. And he's referred to in another passage as his anointed one. He says, who raised up one from the east, who in righteousness called him to his feet? It's a commissioning. It says it's related to purpose. It's not related to salvation. It's related to God had a purpose for raising up Cyrus. And that purpose was to decree for the Jews to return to the land from the Babylonian captivity. So their calling has this idea of commissioning are focusing them on a purpose. Now, it's used the same way in the New Testament, uh, this next point, the commissioning of every believer to service in the body of Christ. In Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, the, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. The calling here refers to the purpose for which we were saved. We have a calling. We have a purpose. God did not save us just so we could go to heaven. There was a purpose in that calling. We're saved for a righteous purpose. The New Testament also uses it, as it did in the Old Testament, for just um, indicating the identification of a name. 
uh, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints. They're just named. That's just a nomenclature. Same thing in 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints. That's the, the naming of something. Now, let's go back to Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that to those who love God, all things work together for good. To those who are what? The called. But it doesn't stop there. They're the called according, uses the, the Greek preposition kata, conformity to a standard. They're called according to a purpose. We're to conform to a purpose. God had a purpose in calling us. So that purpose is future. The idea of our calling is to accomplish something, to bring something about. There is a purpose that God has. So what I'm pointing out here is the calling is oriented to a purpose. Predestination is also oriented to conformity in the future to the character of Christ. So these terms are not looking at something God did in the past, but the purpose for which this has happened, that God has a plan and a purpose that he's taking us toward. The word here, the two words that are used here related to this, the word here actually in the text is a second word, prothesis, but it's from the verb prothethemi, and the verb has to do with a <clears throat> plan, a proposal, an intended act. Prothesis has to do with setting something forth, a presentation, a display, a plan, a purpose. God, uh, the, the resol- uh, a person resolves to do something. So it has to do with, with this idea of a future plan. It's used in some interesting passages, Romans 9:11. Now this is the passage where it talks about Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. This is not talking about the individual eternal destiny of Jacob and Esau. It is talking about God's corporate plan for the descendants of Jacob, Israel, versus the descendants of Esau. It's not talking about their eternal destiny plan, but their plan and per- God's plan and purpose for them in, in history. So Romans 9.11, having talked about just, just before that the twins um, in the womb, Paul says, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, that's prothesis, rather, the purpose of God according to election. God made a choice. He chose that the path of blessing from Abraham to Isaac would then go through Jacob. It's not a soteriological plan or choice. It is that God chose that through Jacob, God would uh, develop his plan for Israel, not through Esau. And God chooses people for different purposes and roles all the time. That has nothing to do with their eternal destiny. So election is according to the purpose of God within his plan, not in terms of the end result of a person's uh, destiny in terms of heaven or hell. Ephesians 1.11 uses these words again that were predestined according to purpose. So God sets up the destiny, predetermines our destiny in Christ to be conformed to Christ according to his plan or purpose. It's not this Calvinistic idea that God is determining who will be saved and who won't be saved. 
Ephesians 3.11 uses the word again, according to the eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ. Now, where I'm going to go with this is our election is corporate, just like election in the Old Testament is corporate, and it's election in Christ. Those who are in Christ share in Christ's election and his destiny. We get there by making a volitional response to the gospel to believe it. And then when we are we're in Christ, then we share in those blessings and that destiny. Now, calling is always oriented to this purpose, So, as I stated earlier. So we have passages like Galatians 5.13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. It's not talking about you've been called to heaven as opposed to the lake of fire. It's talking about God's plan and purpose for the believer who is in Christ. We've been called to liberty. The believer in Christ is called to liberty. We're to serve one another. Ephesians 1.18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. The hope of his calling is our future destiny to rule and reign with Christ, which is then defined in, in the phrase of the verse as the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints, our future inheritance. Ephesians 4.4 4 says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Hope is a future term. Calling has to do with our orientation to God's future plan and purpose. Colossians 3.15, Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. So peace is part of why we were called. First uh, Thessalonians 4.7, We're called for holiness. First uh, Peter 2.21, we're called, this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. We're called to imitate Christ. First Peter 3, 9, we're called to inherit a blessing. None of this is related to calling to go to heaven versus calling to go to the lake of fire. It has to do with our purpose with, as believers in the body of Christ. Now this brings us to about five minutes to hit a critical passage, and I'll take it. I think we can do it. I don't want to spend forever going through this. John 6. Turn with me to John 6 real quick. The key verse, although there are others, the, the central verse that you'll hear Calvinists cite for <clears throat> efficacious grace or irresistible grace is John 6. And they look at John 6, yeah, John 6, 37, 44, and 65. John 6:37 Jesus said all that the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out in other words you can't come to Jesus unless the father um, gives them to you gives them to Jesus John 6:44 no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day and that verse is taken out of context and everything is loaded up on that one verse you can't come to the father doesn't matter how much you want to be saved, you can't come unless the Father draws you. And that drawing from the Father is irresistible. And then they'll take the word ekluo there that is used for um, drawing, and, and it's used of, of hauling a fish into the boat. See, the fish was hauled in against his will. And uh, somebody hauled off to jail. See, they're taken to jail against their will. So they import a secondary idea in some context as a primary meaning that a clue means that you are uh, drawn against your will. 
Well, that's not what the context says. The next verse make, uh, makes it very clear. We'll get to that in a minute. John 6.65 is the other verse where Jesus said, Therefore I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. So it doesn't matter what you want to do. The Father makes the decision, and you're irrelevant to it. That's their basic position. Now, when we look at this, we really have to look at, at context and understand how some things are used uh, within the Scripture. First of all, this is in the middle of the bread of life discourse. Jesus is talking about that he is the bread of life and the source of life. In the context of John chapter 6, there is a disagreement that breaks out as the people sort of challenge what Jesus is saying. But there's two groups of people in front of him. There's the group that is resistant to the gospel and to Jesus' claim to be the Messiah and the group that is, has responded to his claims to be, the, to be the Messiah. So there's unbelievers and believers in the group. Uh, verse 24 says, When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, uh, they got in boats, went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side, they come to him and say, Well, how did you get here? And, and then he begins to confront them and say, in verse 26, I say to you, seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. The only reason you're coming to me is because you think I'm the federal government and I'm going to feed you. Basically putting it into modern terms. Um, so then they ask him in verse 28, well, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God that you, what, believe in him who sent me. What we're going to see here is several times through this chapter, Jesus emphasizes the condition is believe. He does this in John 6, 29 that you believe in him who he sent, John 6, 35. I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst, John 6, 40. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, John 6, 47. He who believes in me has everlasting life, John 6, 64. Uh, the contrast, there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning that uh, who were there, uh, who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. So you have some believers and some, some unbelievers. Now, this is the context for, in which Jesus says, this is the will the Father sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing. Who is it that Jesus describes in this phrase? Now, I don't know. I think I'm going to come back and look at this next time. This is really interesting. Uh, this is fun. I'll come back. I'll review this next time. This is great stuff. Who does Jesus say when he says all he has given me? Who's he talking about? Is he talking about church-age believers today? No, he's not. He's talking about all, all people in front of him who were Old Testament saints who believed in him who had already believed the gospel. They were Old Testament believers, and now they're responding to him as the Messiah. Now, how can I say that? Because this, this phrase is used not just here in John 6, but it's used several times in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 and following. In John 17:1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. 
Now that sounds like that would be all believers of all ages, right? Can't be though. In John seventeen six, Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me. The men whom you have given me. Jesus is talking about present tense reality. Jesus is the one who personally manifested his name to those whom God gave him. That's not something he's doing in the church age. That's something he did personally during the incarnation. Jesus is talking about only those who, came, who God gave him who were from the body of Old Testament, what we call Old Testament saints in Israel. He says, I've manifested your name to the men whom you've given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Can't be anybody future. Because there were people in the future who didn't keep his word. But these are those who kept his word. It's a limited group. It's the ones Jesus personally manifested himself to and that they kept his word. They were obedient to him. That limits it to the to a historical interpretation. He says in verse, uh, let me see, in verse 20, he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, who are the ones who will believe in me through their word? That's us. The ones who, but he makes a distinction by verse 20. These are those who have been given to him. Those who will believe from their word are a second group. That's the future group. So when Jesus is talking about this group that's being given to him from the Father, it's this group of Old Testament saints who have to respond to this new claim that Jesus is the Messiah, and they are making that transition during that particular age. So when Jesus is talking about no one can come to me except those whom you've given me, he's talking about this set group of, all, uh, of Old Testament saints who are going through the transition responding to his messianic claim. Now, the last part of this is John six forty four. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, if you isolate that, then it's easy to come up with the Calvinist idea of this internal call. But that's not what's going on here. The next verse says, it's written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. How are they drawn to Christ? They're being taught by the scriptures. His quote from Isaiah uh, in the next verse, in verse 45, which is a quote from Isaiah 54:13, is a quote stating that the way in which men were drawn was through the Old Testament scriptures, through the Word of God. That's how God draws. It's not talking about an internal draw or an internal call. It's talking about the external call that comes through the announcement of the gospel uh, through through the scriptures. So the drawing of John 6:44 is understood as only the external call of the gospel, the gospel invitation. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and he draws him through, the, through being taught the word of God. That's how we're drawn. This doesn't have anything to do with the internal draw of uh, our internal call of God the Holy Spirit that's just read into the passage. So wrapping it up, in conclusion... Calling in the scripture is not a reference to irresistible grace or efficacious grace or the efficacious call, however you want to call it, 
but it is a term referring to those who've responded to the gospel and who are now oriented to a future plan and purpose of God in relation to their destiny with Christ. That's the call. The call to those who have responded to the gospel invitation and are now identified with Christ and therefore are sharing his destiny, that predestined destiny that we have with Christ in the millennial kingdom. So with that, we've completed Romans 8.28, and we'll come back and look at Romans 8.29 and 30 next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to think them through and help us to uh, clarify our thinking. These are not easy things to uh, grasp or to uh, explain, but they are clear and important because they're part of your word. We pray that you would help us to put these things together, recognizing that in your sovereignty, you have also decreed human responsibility and volition so that you are able to oversee history without violating human volition and you are able to make clear that which needs to be made clear for all so that all have equal opportunity to respond to the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.